Hey there, Democracy in Danger listeners. We know you've been following Russia's war against Ukraine with the same alarm and anguish that we have. Today, we're going to take you back to a different war, one that also had dire consequences and ended badly for everyone, the United States included. It began with the 9-11 attacks of 2001 and dragged on for what seemed like an eternity. America's invasion of Afghanistan began with the mission of rooting out terrorist organizations. But that effort metastasized into an unwinnable nation-building enterprise with no clear end. That is, until U.S. forces pulled out of the country abruptly last summer, leaving it back in control of the Taliban. There are stark differences, of course, with the conflict in Ukraine, but America's forever wars may yet hold some crucial lessons for the Kremlin. Vladimir Putin is trying to topple the Ukrainian government by force, and even if he succeeds, he will confront years, maybe decades of resistance. It's a scenario very likely to leave his own country and its people weaker, more isolated, and more broken than ever. For a strong dose of insight on why, let's flash back to a show we did last season with the journalist Spencer Ackerman. It's called The Terrible War. Hello, I'm Will Hitchcock. And I'm Siva Vadianathan. And from the University of Virginia's Deliberative Media Lab, this is Democracy in Danger. A shell lands nearby. Taliban fighters ready their weapons. The Americans betrayed us. President Ghani betrayed us too. You left Siva, us under the Brown University has run this program, the Cost of War Project. And they've been tallying up the costs of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and elsewhere since 9-11. And they tally it both in lives and in dollars. And the numbers are staggering. Something like 930,000 people killed, $8 trillion spent by the United States on warfare and security all over the world. Millions of people have been displaced. Thousands of refugees trying to flee these war-torn zones. And we just keep coming back to this question which is how did we let this happen at the White House the battle is now joined on many fronts we will not waver we will not tire we will not falter and we will not fail yeah how how and why right and uh, you know look there there's all these lives and all these dollars and then there's the costs that 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 you can't tally that don't come up on spreadsheets you know the the dramatic upheaval in our political culture that was unleashed in the reaction to the attacks of September 11, 2001, and, and you know, and how the U.S. government and how the, the U.K. government and how other governments responded, you know, we've assembled this global surveillance state. Since 9/11, a classical example of sacrificing liberty for safety and security. We have allowed for, fostered the militarization of domestic policing at a, at a rate just unforeseeable just, just 10 years earlier than that. Heavily armed police battling protesters that led President Obama to question whether local police across the country really need and are trained well enough to use billions of dollars worth of military-style equipment. Uh, you know, the, we've had this paranoid collapse in faith and reason. We've had the spread of conspiratorial thinking. And we were getting ready for a big celebration. We, we were winning everything. And all of and a so sudden, it was just that's why we have someone with us today who has knitted all this together and thought deeply about it. Absolutely. So Spencer Ackerman is a Pulitzer Prize winning investigative journalist and author of Reign of Terror, how the 9-11 era destabilized America and produced Trump. Spencer, welcome to Democracy in Danger. Uh, thank you, Will. Thank you, Siva, for having me. 
Spencer, let me just ask you to talk a little bit about your own experiences in covering the forever wars. You've been in the field. You've reported from Afghanistan and Iraq. Just, you know, give us and our listeners a little flavor of what you saw, what you have reported on. Um, and in particular, you know, how much of this still stays with you? Do you still think about it late at night? What has been the impact of the forever wars and covering it on you? That's a heavy question. Um, I've seen dogs in packs walking through the streets of Baghdad in March of 2007 at the beginning of the surge. And along the roads, either on the roads themselves or pulled to the medians or pulled to the sides of the roads, are the burned out husks of cars that have exploded or cars that have burned up. And you see the dogs going from car to car, sniffing to eat the corpses that remain on the streets. Um, the only real incident of battlefield heroism that I've seen occurred, and I write about this in the book, uh, in eastern Afghanistan in 2008, when a American platoon sergeant stopped the Afghan police from looting the house of a bunch of middle-aged to elderly women who would have been entirely defenseless. And stopping this theft uh, meant that this platoon sergeant was functionally setting back his missions. But this person instead saw the war in that moment for what it was, an opportunity for theft, an opportunity for brutality, an opportunity for domination, and refused to be silent and acquiesce in that moment. And that was heroism. And on his next tour in Afghanistan, he was killed in action. So that those are things that I take with me in the war on terror. I take with me also um, the look in the eyes of... Guantanamo detainees seethed with the understandable contempt and hatred that anyone would feel to their jailer, let alone a foreign jailer. And, you know, I've also seen the ways in which people placed in situations of unbelievable stress exhibit the most human of emotions, which is complete faith and solidarity in one another. And that is something that I think the war on terror was unable to kill. Yeah. But at the macro level, it all seems so futile. Uh, you know, we, we never had a justification to invade Iraq. And yet we have now rendered Iraq with, a, you know, a, an unstable, barely democratic government that seems to be in cahoots with Iran more than in, with the United States. And, and in Afghanistan, the Taliban were in charge before we invaded. They're in charge again. And yes, uh, you know, Osama bin Laden's dead and, and, and Al-Qaeda is, is basically scattered and, and demobilized. But that doesn't mean that similar threats don't still exist. And, and yet the cost has been so high. I'm really interested in, in the path of how we moved from being so sure of ourselves 20 years ago to being so shaken in our in our faith and trust in our ability to actually execute anything good and grand right so you yourself went through a bit of a conversion process can you talk about that conversion process that awakening process sure um i'm a native new yorker i uh attended rutgers university um and so uh i spent 911 
afraid every moment that uh, my parents would be killed, that my cousin would be killed, that all of my friends would be killed, that everyone I knew was in danger of dying and I could do nothing to stop it and I couldn't even be there with them. And if you were in New York or around New York during that time, you remember National Guard vehicles on the street. You remember... uh, cordons emanating from lower manhattan um you remember the smell the smell the smell yes especially the smell the smell was i i really struggled to write that part of the book you know you 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 once you experience that you kind of can't forget it and all of that trauma which also inspired some tremendous acts of solidarity. And uh, I have a very stupid story about this. I did nothing of any significance. Uh, they were you know, quickly telling people like, do you have military experience? No. Do you have medical experience? No. Do you have construction experience? No. So like, I can't, yeah. they were like, take you must these- be a history pa- major. <laughs> <laughs> like take these pallets of water and walk them basically half a mile down to the next collection. I was like, I can do that. You know, out of this despair, I was incandescently angry and I was looking for meaning out of all of this. And I have really no excuse for this. I wanted some kind of satisfaction. I wanted vengeance and I didn't know um, how to apply it. What was very disturbing to me was how quickly in the name of vengeance for 9-11, the so-called national unity that existed was very quickly predatory to New Yorkers who I lived nearby. The way that immigration and federal authorities descended upon entire communities with roundups, uh, with indefinite incommunicado detention, all of that. But I was still angry, blind, and ahistorical enough not to see that this is the enterprise. This is not what I diagnosed it as, an unfortunate side effect that needs to be confronted and stopped. I didn't see that this was the whole thing. And it took me way too long in my estimation. I was also basically around an environment. Um, Shortly after I graduated um, college, I got a job at the New Republic. And this was a time in which particularly all respectable opinion had lined up very quickly around, frankly, a propagandistic explanation of what 9-11 was, what led to it, and how valorous the enterprise that becomes known as the war on terror was. There was, in particular, sense that 9-11 had awakened America from the frivolities of a 1990s era escape from history. And now America was finally ready to put aside its childish behavior and return to the mantle that history had prescribed for it. And like, this is real manifest destiny hours. Right, yeah. right. No, well, it was real, back with it's a real, It's like a, a call to masculinity. It's an, an appeal to a sense of maturity, which is basically faked, right? Instead of real. And and the one thing that was missing was thought. And and But in particular, this is the way that in particular liberal societies love to justify violence, love to justify hegemony, love to justify global policing, that this is fundamentally an an act of liberation. Right. And I had just enough of that old theory to kind of sort of think like, oh, perhaps maybe in fact this was. By the time we get to the carnage in Iraq, which my job at the New Republic at that point was to document every day, I I experienced like a kind of moment of crisis where as 
I was looking at what the Iraq occupation actually was, not how it portrayed itself, not how magazines like the one I worked for portrayed it. It was unjustifiable. And, you know, I don't mean to imply that I had like this revelation all at once. It filtered the way I saw the world in ways that I hadn't really fully explored and would take me a long time, you know, particularly as a reporter for me to understand and interpret what was going on and how consonant it was with um, American exceptionalism and how rooted all of this is in American history. It's fascinating. And I think a very honest account of your the growth and the development of all of us as we went from that period of trauma and 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 bewilderment to right. figuring out what are the consequences. Let me bring you to the book itself, because Reign of Terror is a, is a powerful uh, book. You accomplish a lot, packing 20 years of politics yeah. and history into a, into a short, powerful format. You know, your basic thesis is that uh, the wars on terror, the forever wars, have gutted our democracy and delivered us into the hands of a, of a, of a sociopathic nihilist named Donald Trump. But And, and that's an incredible—I'm persuaded by, by the argument, but I want, in your words, to give us a couple of concrete examples of where you see democratic institutions really buckling under the pressures of this 20 years of, of conflict. What are, the, what are the examples you think are the most salient? All right. So real quickly, you know, institutionally speaking, shortly after 9-11, the United States government institutes in a variety of different fora surveillance at a scale unheard of um, in American history, technologically impossible a generation before in such a way that government acquisition of your records and your effects can't work and does not work in a way that uh, comports with any good faith reading of the Fourth Amendment. And that's done entirely in secret at the very beginning. And for years after, only the chief justice of a secret surveillance court knows about it. And only the political and intelligence leaders of Congress know about it, uh, the so-called Gang of Eight. And that to the NSA, which had already achieved uh, internal justification uh, by its its cadre of lawyers, um, surprise, surprise, um, they engage in something that transforms the relationship between the citizen and the state. They do it unilaterally, however much they will argue that that was robust judicial and legislative assent. Similarly, uh, we see roundups of not just Muslims, but immigrants in general, as immigration comes to be seen not as a mechanism to make more Americans, but a threat to Americans that are already here. Uh, The newly created Department of Homeland Security creates a data registry of Muslim non-citizens. Some, I think over 12,000, I believe, of them were deported. That registry, the first Muslim registry that remains, regardless of the controversy that uh, Donald Trump would raise when he he proposed such a thing. The Department of Homeland Security did this with ultimately the assent of the political system because that part was done openly. The judicial authorities overwhelmingly over 20 years describe their role as an oversight to the executive on matters of national security as absolutely minimal. Uh, the courts up to and including the Supreme Court typically assent to the hollowing out 
of all of these traditional understandings of constitutional rights um, that prevent indefinite detention, that prevent overbroad surveillance. Typically, they agree to these things and at times will trim them around the edges, but leave the enterprise there. And that's combined with what I would consider a usurpation under Barack Obama of the judicial powers under Article 3, where an internal process known as the disposition matrix with justification from a quasi-judicial judicial panel inside the Department of Justice, known as the Office of Legal Counsel, throttles who lives and who dies. They establish the precedent that if the CIA, or I guess in other cases it would be any law enforcement or intelligence authority, just promises with a pinky swear that it's simply too hard to catch an American citizen who they believe is dangerous, they can be executed with a drone strike. I would submit to you that as long as that architecture is there and that precedent set by a Democratic president is there, that ain't going to be the last drone strike on American citizens. You know, all of this occurs under an atmosphere and a normalized culture of both conspiratorial thinking and very big lies, big lies told by the government. I'm not just talking about um, Iraq and WMD and Iraq and the phantom connection between Saddam Hussein and Al-Qaeda, which doesn't exist, um, which you know Donald Rumsfeld called bulletproof at one point. I'm talking more about how the CIA sets out um, an aggressive campaign of lies to conceal its torture that involves not just outright lies about the operations of torture, but manipulations of language to form patterns of thought that excuse that behavior. It's not torture, it's enhanced interrogation. They're not assassinating people anonymously. This is targeted killing, things like that. And then the architects of these operations and um, these propagandistic manipulations of public opinion all in 2015 and 16 are shocked when Donald Trump starts wielding these big lies. People like Michael Hayden, the former NSA and CIA director, whose lies from a single day of testimony, a single day, are an entire annex of the Senate torture report published in 2014. This man has the audacity when discussing Trump to talk about how dangerous a position we are in because our faith in truth as a public has been eroded to such a point. This is such a constitutional vandal that the final act of vandalism comes from denying that before Trump was their enemy, he was Trump's necessary precondition. Right, right. So, you know, you write in your book, the culture of 9-11 echoed the jihadism it sought to destroy. And that's a pretty provocative line. Are you drawing a basic equivalence between U.S. behavior over 20 years and the ideology of, of, of an al-Qaeda or an ISIS? I mean, can you dig deeper into that? Yeah, what I'm saying is uh, America diagnoses patterns in its enemies that function as a kind of projection. Let's put it this way. How many times do you remember since 9-11 that... Um, Cabinet members, presidents, people with stars on their shoulders have demanded angrily and for justifiable reason that, say, Pakistan needs to crack down on the ungoverned spaces in its midst that are being used by psychotic fanatics um, who are exporting violence um, and who are demonstrating the most noxious form of psychotic, often religiously justified 
violence. Right. Sounds familiar. And I start off the book going to essentially a white caliphate in northeastern Oklahoma where psychotic people train with weapons, inflict gender-based violence on their own, and talk about the legitimacy of killing, you know, however many Americans necessary to redress the mongrelized government that we currently have and restore America to a patriotism of its proper citizens. And we've seen that in Oklahoma City with the, the what was before 9-11 the greatest terrorist attack most deadly terrorist attack in U.S. history. In American and of course, history. Yeah, and we've seen it time and time again since 9-11. We saw it here in Charlottesville in 2017, and that's growing, right? And what I'm getting at is that one of the crucial things that America does after 1995, after Oklahoma City in 1995, is that it doesn't construct a war on terror against white people. It only constructs a war on terror against non-white people. And I think that is a real important point to understand. And we can trace what the war on terror really is by looking at that. And we can accordingly understand how America shelters its own very indigenous forms of terrorism and doesn't understand them to be terrorism. Think about how many times um, you've heard people like George W. Bush talk about evildoers and bad guys and so forth. The important point about that language is that it redefines badness and evil away from evil being something that you do to evil being something that you are. And that licenses a tremendous amount of violence and repression against this other and prevents a process of introspection from you. And one of the things that America has never allowed itself to do after 9-11 because of all of the currents that animate the war on terror is ask itself, what has been its role in creating conditions that would drive a demand for people to go blow themselves up? Because let's remember and understand him that way, a billionaire told them that this kind of appetite for vengeance is religiously sanctioned. Yeah, it's it's I, 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 I think one of the things that you're helping us do is is bring the war home. So there's a war out there, but then there's the way in which the war warps our political discourse, our language uh, and indeed our policies. And the, the one policy area that I wanted you to reflect on a little bit is immigration. So we've done a number of interviews with authors on the history of immigration in the United States. It's a very sordid tale. But the last 20 years have been among the most sordid chapters. How do you articulate the relationship between the war on terror as an external phenomenon and what amounts to a kind of war on immigrants inside the United States during the last 20 years? So um, the hijackers come to the United States legally. There isn't a violation of immigration law that happens. And an enormous chorus on the right, acquiesced to by liberals, holds this cognitively dissonant thing, which is that on the one hand, Terrorists attacked our open society. Let's just stipulate for a second. We're not going to argue with that because that's not actually what they attacked. But just for the sake of argument, let's just keep it out there because that was a popular conception. And then on, you know, simultaneously, 
that our open society is what allowed the terrorists to attack us. Right. And this tension is all the way there throughout the war on terror, particularly um, urgently in its early days. Um, within a month of the attacks, Bill O'Reilly is on TV talking about how we need to send troops to the border. What the fuck are they going to do against Al Qaeda at the border? Like, <laughs> right, th- and right. what this tells you is that this isn't a reaction to Al Qaeda. This, this is nine eleven is understood as a far more civilizational threat that allows opportunity for an extant politics of nativist repression to come storming through the gates and use the opportunities provided by nine eleven to transform government functions into an apparatus of immigration persecution. And that's what happens. That's when the roundups begin. And just to say one more thing about this to, you know, because you asked like, how exactly did we get from 9-11 to Trump? Um, The architect of all this at the Justice Department at the time um, is the immigration advisor to Attorney General John Ashcroft, a plucky young up-and-comer who we'll hear from more in the future named Chris Kobach. Right. But I mean, let me just ask you this one question because we're going to run out of time. Joe Biden has pulled the United States out of Afghanistan. What is the significance of that? Is that a big deal or do you see it as sort of, you know, one evolution of the forever wars? Are they going to continue or is this marking an endpoint? I think this is the test. Um, The test is that one, yes, it is a big deal that a figure like Joe Biden pulls the U.S. out of Afghanistan. Um, Joe Biden is the one Um, who whatever brought him to that point has the wherewithal and the courage to stand up to an atmosphere distinct within elite political circles like the ones that he has traveled in for 50 years that says America cannot accept losing a war. America would prefer uh, the indefinite maintenance of a failed war to the conclusion of an apparatus of death and destruction and immiseration, and he's paying for that. However, this is really the test. Biden, in his public statements, treats the war on terror in the Afghanistan war as synonymous, suggesting that by ending the Afghanistan war, the war on terror is over. It's nowhere near over. The test is whether Biden and his allies in Congress are willing to entertain anything more than restriction of the war on terror in the margins. And the early indications are not promising because Biden, much like Obama did with withdrawing from Iraq and escalating in Afghanistan, is treating the war in Afghanistan as a problem because it was a liability from what he calls the contemporary counterterrorism threat picture. And that means the apparatus of the war on terror terror isn't getting dismantled, it's getting reoriented. Spencer Ackerman, thank you so much for joining us today on Democracy in Danger. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. That was Spencer Ackerman, an investigative journalist. He's written for The New Republic, Wired, The Guardian, and The Daily Beast. His book is Reign of Terror, How the 9-11 Era Destabilized America and Produced Trump. Democracy in Danger is part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to find all our sister shows. We'll be right back after this message from our friends. Remember when Donald Trump talked a lot about draining the swamp when he ran for office? That slogan fired up his base as much as it caused his critics' eyes to roll. 
But what is the swamp anyway? And what's in it? Swamp Stories, another podcast from the Democracy Group, shines a light on the shadowy corners of Washington, from congressional slush funds to dark money influence across the political spectrum. Hear from reform leaders, elected officials, and experts on the culture of cash and corruption in American politics and how to fix it. Go to swampstories.org or listen wherever you get your podcasts. Siva, Spencer Ackerman brought back a lot of emotional uh, moments in our in our lives of the last 20 years. But I really found one of the things that was most helpful was his reminding us that the Democratic Party all along was a foot soldier in building and approving and funding the war on terror. And I just wanted to bring up to our listeners an image that um, kind of captures this, which is when John Kerry, running for president, accepted the Democratic nomination for president. And he strode to the podium. And this former anti-Vietnam War resistor, this young man who had thrown his medals at the, you know, uh, uh, at the Pentagon or at the Congress, yeah. he stood up and he saluted and he said, I'm John Kerry and I'm reporting for duty. And it's just a reminder, man, of the Democratic Party. They bought in and they essentially did not want any daylight between themselves and the Republicans on the question of the war on terror. You know, that said, there was strong and vocal opposition within the Democratic Party against specifically the invasion of Iraq, although not the invasion, occupation and long term presence in Afghanistan, which seemed to have pretty broad support across both parties. Now, you know, still... We're stuck with the political culture, a political culture in which in those 18 to 24 months after the attacks of 9-11-2001, it was impossible to mount a sustained, systemic, reasonable, reasoned, informed argument that perhaps we shouldn't do everything we're capable of doing at this moment, that perhaps there are wiser paths and courses of action. To have that kind of discussion was pretty much forbidden. I'm going to I'm going to take a moment to to read from a piece that Susan Sontag wrote in, in just a few days after the attacks on New York and on Washington in 2011. She was one of a number of New Yorker writers and contributors who were asked to weigh in on that moment. The public is not being asked to bear much of the burden of reality. The unanimously applauded self-congratulatory bromides of a Soviet party Congress seem contemptible. The unanimity of the sanctimonious, reality-concealing rhetoric spouted by American officials and media commentators in recent days seems, well, unworthy of a mature democracy. And then later... Let's by all means grieve together, but let's not be stupid together. Reading Spencer Ackerman's book, it's pretty clear that we've had a real long run of being stupid together. No, I hear you. And, and I think uh, these voices who were critics at the time, um, and there were many, there were people in the streets who opposed the, the Iraq War uh, right. by the hundreds of thousands. 
uh, they were shunted off as radicals and alarmists and unpatriotic. And boy, have we come full circle to realize that those voices are the ones we should have been heeding. And if there's one thing for me that still stands out as the, the acme, the epitome of the war on terror and what it did to us, it's the torture program. Yes. And yet we haven't really fundamentally done the work of asking ourselves, what did that do to us? Yes. Ackerman is saying what it did to us is it opened the door for Donald Trump. And I think he's right about that. And I think the uh, the harm is even wider than that to our political culture, our sense of values and our ethics. Right. What Donald Trump knew in his bones as a, as a gifted demagogue was that the American public had lost the ability to care about these things. Yeah. And we'd been hollowed out our, our moral sensibility over this long period of war and conflict had in a sense been um, anesthetized. Yeah. But at the same time, we do have a break in the narrative. The end of the war in Afghanistan is a moment that invites us to reflect on the harm that we have done to ourselves over the last 20 years. Let's not miss this chance. That's it for this rebroadcast of Democracy in Danger. We'll have a new show for you next week with journalist Rebecca Traster. She'll make the case for protecting democracy by protecting abortion rights. They got a majority of people, and more than a majority, and close to 70%, 70% of people who want abortion to remain legal. In the meantime, please remember that we're active on Twitter. Our handle is at DND Podcast. That's DND Podcast. And visit our website, dindanger.org to find notes on all of our episodes and news about what we're working on this season. And keep helping us save democracy. Subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app, share it on social media, and leave a review. It's the best way to boost our audience. Democracy in Danger is produced by me, Robert Armenval. Jennifer Ludovici is our associate producer. Our interns are Denzel Mitchell, Jane Frankel, and Ellie Bashkow. Support comes from the University of Virginia's Democracy Initiative and from the College of Arts and Sciences. The show is a project of UVA's Deliberative Media Lab. We're distributed by the Virginia Audio Collective of WTJU Radio in Charlottesville. I'm Will Hitchcock. And I'm Siva Vaidyanathan. Until next time. <laughs>